Hi, I'm Austin Wintery, and we're going to talk about music and games and probably a lot of Jerry Goldsmith and whatever other dark sordid things come up. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today and for inviting me to your studio. I'm a huge fan of yours. So it's such a great pleasure to, to pick your brain for a little bit. <laughs> You're too kind. So I kind of want to start with your kind of background. Um, Going back to growing up and everything, when did when did music sort of enter your life? And I guess what was the pivotal moment that you decided, okay, I'm going to go, this is going to be my career path and going towards kind of film, TV, game, composition? Well, I, it's funny, when I tell the story, it makes me seem very impulsive because those two questions of when did I want to become a composer and when did music come into my life are the same moment. Same moment, yeah. I just kind of discovered this concept and then it was like, that's what I want to do, and I've never let off of it since, which was... About age ten, I love it. We're qu one question in, and we're all going to be already going to be talking about Goldsmith. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, when I was about ten, I realized I could figure out movie themes. I was big into movies and comics and games and typical stuff, I guess. And so I realized I could kind of plunk out themes like from Star Wars and Indiana Jones mm -hmm. on the piano that we had that was just kind of gathering dust in the corner. And my parents said, "Do you want?" to try piano lessons. They had no, this came out of the blue mm -hmm. from their perspective. You know, why, how, since when do you know how to play piano? Were your parents into music at all? Not no. at all. My father had a lot of innate musicality and his mother was a professional musician. Okay. Violinist in the local orchestra in Arkansas and uh, full-time uh, private teacher of piano and violin and I think French horn even. And um, So there was, there was a, a, a musical kind of lineage but it had skipped a generation more or less uh, and then, and then I was discovering a, a kind of disposition. So we get a piano teacher, big Irish guy who had in the in the seventies he actually lived in L.A. and was a ghostwriter on shows like The Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones and oh, things wow. like that. But he had made his way back to to Denver uh, at some point uh, many years ago and was a you know working pianist played. Weddings and malls and and uh, jazz clubs, phenomenal jazz musician. Yeah. And so this guy shows up at uh, our house and <laughs> says, "What do you want to learn?" And I basically said, "I don't, I don't really know because I don't, I didn't listen to music at all in my, at that yeah. point. I knew a few soundtracks, like Star Wars. I had the Star Wars LP. Was, you were ten, right? So it was ten. Yeah. Kind of when I started discovering, maybe one or two or three that you were, you're not versed in it yet. But it was the yeah. movies. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. I had a Star Wars soundtrack because of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I could not have told you the name John Williams. Yeah, exactly. Even though yeah. I had ground this thing to dust, <laughs> I had listened to that album so much. And it was one of those where I could listen to the album and like recite the dialogue alongside yeah, it. You the know, same thing with um, the Jurassic Park was for me. It was '93. So I was six. And my parents got it for me after I saw the movie, and it was my cassette player, and yeah. <laughs> same thing. Yep, yep, exact same. And and so, uh, so I had a couple of token soundtracks, but I didn't. Cons I I wouldn't have even known to identify that. Yeah. I really didn't listen to music at all. No bands, no classical albums, no you know jazz. So when this guy Derry O'Leary, this piano teacher, says, "What do you want to learn?" I said, "I don't really know." So he says, well, let me show you my favorite music. And the next week he shows up with a stack of Goldsmith LPs mm -hmm. of, like, Papillon, Patton, um, Boys from Brazil, and uh, a patch of blue. And I, in one instant, basically said, I, first off, I don't know what I thought composing was, but right. the idea of writing this vivid, explosive, colorful, passionate kind of music was not in my 
on my radar of what a composer could be. Yeah. And then the fact that this was an actual job. This was a real career. This wasn't that one in a million go sit by the side of the river and wait for inspiration to strike right. and then become famous like yeah. Brahms, you know? Yeah, yeah. This was uh, f- a, a, an actual career because I was always kind of practical. I, I, I had a million careers I wanted to have even by that point. I wanted to be yeah. a writer, you know? I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to, <laughs> to uh, be a game designer, I actually studied programming. Um, and so I, I liked the idea that having a dream that had actionable steps yeah, and the idea of discovering Goldsmith and then, of course, realizing, hey, I already have a couple of albums by this, this John Williams fellow. What's he done? Yeah. Um, and then that led, you know, to, like, James Horner was huge for me around, because that was, like, the era of him doing score. Like, a new James Horner score in theaters at that point was, like, Braveheart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I guess that was a few years later. But the point is, uh, I, I very quickly fell in love, especially with the very traditional kind of, cla- you know, your Williams and Goldsmiths mm-hmm. and Horners and and um, prior to that, you know, Herman, w- Franz Waxman is probably my all-time, oh. my, my favorite of that the kind of prototype generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and John Barry, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I became obsessed and said from this point forward, that's what I want to do. And, and I made all of my life decisions essentially about aiming towards that pursue that yeah yeah so like for example in high school i kind of seemingly took over the school orchestra mm-hmm. and i uh, learned i learned orchestration without i i i never made a mock-up until college um for example i wrote music by hand and would conduct the school orchestra and i had four years of hearing my stuff played by real people wow, yeah. almost every day and then conducting it in concert and learning the differences between the acoustics of a rehearsal room versus a stage and all that stuff and just dumb luck. And I went to a school that's pretty big, 4,000 students. Mm-hmm. And so because the student population was so big, they had a pretty deep talent pool to draw from. So our top orchestra was like a college orchestra, almost, not right. quite. And you know, go, I, I still have a few recordings, amazingly, from back then, <laughs> uh, just crappy live. And, and they're, you know, they're students. It's not good sounding, but it's, yeah. but you can hear... The piece, and I felt I learned a lot. I, I I learned how to make very average students or decent above average students sound okay, which meant that professionals. It was always easy for me, and I was right. that's just luck. I don't attribute that to like talent or anything like yeah, that. To me, I was just lucky. Yeah. yeah, I was able to deal with the psychology of dealing with real players yeah, yeah. from my earliest memories, basically. Wow. So yeah, it was it was. I remember reading an interview with David Raxon where he talked about how when he first got started, he was like an assistant or something, and um, and they had the staff orchestras back in those days, and, and he would just ask, like, on days where there's not much to do, could he go and put charts out in front of the orchestra? And he learned by just hearing stuff back from these people who yeah. otherwise had nothing to do. And I said, I managed to somehow have a kind of... 20th century public school version of a similar thing, yeah. uh, which is rare. And, and yeah. uh, uh, so there's a big reason why I'm so passionate about uh, our, our, our uh, uh, place in which we have uh, right. crossed paths uh, yes. in the past, education through music. Yeah. Because the idea of kids not having, uh, surrounding themselves with music education growing up, my entire life is based on the fact that in public schools, I was able to encounter a music education program that 
that literally nothing about my life today would have been possible without. Right. And so when I realized that that's very uncommon, it blew my mind when I left home and moved out into the world mm -hmm. that my experience was extremely rare. I didn't know that it was so uncommon for schools to have orchestras and bands and choirs and all that stuff. Yeah, and now that's a big part of your life now. I mean, you're on the board of directors and, and you guys put on this amazing gala every, every year and raise so much money for that cause. That's really fantastic for LA schools and that's awesome because yeah, even for students who don't go and become professional musicians, it's such a big part of education, I think, yeah. Yeah, to me it's, it is not a luxury item. Mm -hmm. It's regarded as that. Yeah. But you, t you only need to look into the neuroscience of a developing brain and what music does for that and yeah. for things like neuroplasticity. You only need to make a superficial glance at that research to realize that you forever change the mental trajectory of a student who has music versus one who doesn't. Mm -hmm. They can be brilliant and with music they'll be more so. Yeah. It's just because and, and I and I always hate the kind of you know on the nose like oh it must make you good at math because music involves counting. It's nothing to do with that. It, I mean maybe that's one percent of it but the idea is just it stimulates connections in the brain that yeah. no other activity does, and our brain is all about those neural pathways. I know, and I had—I mean, I had uh, piano lessons when I was young, and and I can't play the piano now, but it was part of you know growing up and just figuring that stuff out and hearing it. And I would listen to a lot of music, and I still do, of course. But it's, it's yeah. yeah, and it, it and it whether you know it or not, or and you obviously can't measure yourself against yeah. an alternate reality version of exactly. you that didn't have that. Right. But there's it's un it's unquestionable data to, that support that your ability to think yeah. and do things <laughs> is heavily influenced by that. So ha I'm Absolutely. happy to hear that you had that in spades as well. Exactly. Yeah, it was it was yeah, another lucky <laughs> circumstance. Yeah, so. and it shouldn't be. That's the idea. It I shouldn't know. be lucky. It should be mundane. Exactly. It should be in every classroom. Um, so when you kind of came into uh, um, this industry and started finding kind of, oh, I, need a, I need a job, I need to make money, what were kind of the first jobs you had in this industry? Well, I, because I had such an early obsession, my first jobs weren't about making money because they were student projects. Exactly. I, I, and, but a few student projects ended up being launching pads for my career mm -hmm. um, just by the luck of the draw. I mean, you I did a lot of shorts, like, yeah. like thousands. I, yeah. I, I did. In fact, I go back every year to USC where I got my degrees mm -hmm. or deg I got, I got my degree. It's a hybrid thing that they don't do anymore, but it was like, I got an undergrad in composition, but also their scoring graduate program, but right. we smashed it all together into one degree program. Mm -hmm. They don't let you do anymore. Bear McCreary did the same thing and they, Canceled it because most students it kicked their ass because it was basically two full degree programs yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. And Bear was always the one. He went through two or three years before I did. And they always said he was the only student who ever just took it in stride and, and had no trouble managing both. So he was kind of my, my model. I initially hated him because I was <laughs> like, every t everything I, every, I didn't know him. Yeah. Uh, but I, every time I did anything that I was proud of, they'd be like, oh, that's like this one time Bear did a thing that was like this, but 5% cooler than that. And uh, all, the, and I realized later that they were t complimenting me because they yeah. had such admiration for him. And he, he was right. in the middle of the, like season two or something of Battlestar Galactica. So he had, he had kind of planted his flag, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so, um, um, of course now I don't even remember. Oh, the student shorts. Yes. Uh, yeah. That, when I go back to uh, the SC program now or any other school I always tell them uh, that the biggest it, lesson I learned from that was 
an obvious one now to anyone looking at this industry is it's all about the investment and the relationships. Mm -hmm. I scored so many student films, I mean literally like 75, 80 in one year, that I didn't get it, it's not physically possible to get to know on a deep level anywhere near all those filmmakers. So a couple of those people went on and did cool stuff. and we never really worked together again because we barely knew each other, even though we were happy with the results of the collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I was lucky that there were a few, you know, good number that I continued to, to work with, including one filmmaker uh, where I did his AFI thesis short while I was at USC, and then that led to scoring his, his first feature film, which was he, while I was uh, scoring his student film, he was in Jordan in the Middle East shooting his feature. Wow. And... It and that film that was called Captain Oburad, and yeah, it ended yeah. up being kind of my first noteworthy uh, film for sure. But in a way, my first noteworthy project. Well, I guess it was virtually simultaneous to my first game, which was Flow. So Flo, was, the yeah. the two kind of hit. Sim- and Flow also started as a student project. That was a USC uh, master's thesis in game design by Genova right. Chen. In, in, in the inaugural year of that program, I, one of the first, maybe the first uh, game design master's program in the, in the world. Yeah. And Genova was part of their first class, and he made this thing that was so bizarre and experimental, and we put it online just as a little flash browser. It was only my second game. I did one other student project, and that student is who referred me to Genova because wow. they were classmates. And Genova, that game like exploded, and, and then Sony approached him and said, we'd love to turn this into a PlayStation 3 game. The, the PS2 was just wrapping up. PlayStation 3 was getting ready to launch, and they were... Sony, this is, again, where just incredible luck, where Sony, you know, up till that point, all games were what we would now call AAA games. There was yeah. basically no such thing as a spectrum of of budgets and indie versus not, and right, it's right, gotten right. much more granular and kind of shattered. Yeah, uh, especially in this recent generation. Like, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Steam in the last decade or so completely yeah. took the gloves off of everything. Absolutely, yeah. But Sony saw the future coming, and they they made the PS3 natively internet, you know, wired, right. and built-in Wi-Fi as well. And they were going to launch the PlayStation Network, which was essentially iTunes for video games. And Steam was the only thing remotely... But Steam still in those days was still primarily a vehicle for Valve. The idea of indie indie developers self-publishing or major developers even publishing, it wasn't a full retail entity quite yet. Mm. So Sony said, we want to make a download service where we can make games at a much lower cost, but then instead of selling them for 60 bucks in a store at Best Buy... We can sell them for ten bucks as a download, right. and so we can spend a million, and it doesn't even matter if we turn a profit on it. But it lets us incubate creative talent, and it lets them be like the Fox Searchlight and the Disney or yeah, whatever yeah. or Sony. <laughs> you know, like we can be the home of the God of Wars, the Uncharted's, the Final Fantasies, and also these interesting, you know, the Wes Andersons yeah, of exactly. games. And so they were looking for a developer to, to, to work with, and they found our little Flash game, and they just approached Genova and said, we'd love to sign you to a three-game Sony-exclusive deal, but the first game, we want to be a remake of that game. So I was still in school, in classes, wow. like undergrad liberal arts kind of classes, yeah. and I'm by night scoring a, a real PlayStation game, and ended up, it ended up you know, getting a bunch of awards and things, and 
And it was just insane. I mean, the timing of that is every part of that story is essential for that story to have happened. I mean, the, right. the PlayStation Network aspect of it and the Sony aspect exactly. of it was really, really lucky. So that was the, my first few jobs almost instantly translated into real projects. Exactly. I mean, it was, I mean that movie I mentioned, Captain Marvel Red, I mean, Gabriel Yar had offered to score that film for free. And he was busy working on what was his final uh, Anthony Minghella collaboration, um, the Singing Ladies Detective Agency for HBO. And he was unable to do it within the schedule they had to do it. Otherwise, I would never have done that film either. Wow. Um, and that film, you know, won Sundance and all these exactly. things. And we recorded <laughs> in, a, in a truly surreal twist of fate in hindsight, you know, this foreign film in Arabic. We did the score at AFM at Warner Brothers. That's crazy. Uh, so it was all off of student projects for me initially. It just insane. It, it's, even as I tell the story, it's hard to believe. Yeah. I for mean, me still to this day over 10 years later. And it's and everyone has I think a, a unique story like that. That's what's so amazing that it's just like you can't replicate that any any other way. You it's so true. Yeah. I went to a uh, <laughs> that's why I always say people when like students ask this question, I would yeah. say I'll tell you my story, but the takeaway should be philosophical and not yeah, a checklist no. of yeah, to like, do. Oh, let's do what Austin did. Yeah, yeah. you're not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, w I exactly. I, I once heard a screenwriter say that everyone trying to break into the business is like imagining this big concrete wall and everyone's <laughs> shuffling along it looking for a crack and once yeah. you slip through it seals behind you yeah so no one will ever follow your path yeah and I remember thinking that was such a perfect visual of of how it's it's almost like uh in look who's talking all the little sperm you know that <laughs> yeah, are exactly. bashing against the egg uh and uh, but it's true that's where we'll insert the monetized youtube <laughs> yeah, and commercial break. <laughs> yeah, for master class with Samuel L. Jackson. It'll probably be Hans because it's music related. But it's, yeah, yep. Like, <laughs> I've seen the first five seconds of his master class ad forty trillion times <laughs> because it it, it knows. You uh, had a conversation. Oh man. Yep. Well, here's an answer. Bit of a dodgy answer. answer. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> uh, it's too funny. Uh, <laughs> um. So we were talking. Uh, we we're talking about um, kind of your early uh, shorts working on, and, and Flow was a. You know, we mentioned Flow. And this was such a big um, part of your career, uh, and it's it's such a memorable game too. Because I remember when that game came out, and of course that led to um, Journey and and Abzuin. We'll talk about that. But um, what was it like working on that game? And kind of in that in that part of your life and. You mentioned you were doing it at nights while you're still in class. I mean, we, and it's such an experimental game. I guess where, how did you guys marry the images to the music? I mean, what was kind of the concept that you were working on there? Well, flow was. It's interesting because, I was so green, that I, didn't know to be intimidated, by any of the kind of parameters of that situation. Yeah. It, I liken it to it's a 15-year-old kid that's like playing sports or something where th they don't hold back. Yeah. They you perceive yourself to be invulnerable, and so and the body is pretty durable at that yeah, age. Yeah, exactly. So you are more invulnerable or closer to invulnerable than you'll probably ever be after that. Right. And so you can you can afford to put yourself kind of in the in the you know, in front of the bullet, uh, pretty casually. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's kind of like another way to think of it. It's like the Dunning-Kruger, you know, we don't, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. 
and that in a way in, can empower you. And so with Flow, Flow is a completely electronic score and it's deeply interactive. And those were both completely off of my experience, you know, my, my prior list of experiences up to that point. Yeah. You know, like I said, my heroes were guys where the album cover all said composed and conducted by, you know, exactly, yeah. you know I'm a big fan of of Hans and uh, Elfman and, you know, guys that were more off of the beaten path f- uh, from, like, John Williams, which would yeah, be your archetypal... Guys. Yeah, these yeah. Came from the exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely had and still have a pretty traditional orchestral sensibility. And so the idea of a completely electronic score was uh, totally outside my wheelhouse. And also electronic to such a fine-grained degree yeah but it was one of those where it was just we just went down the rabbit hole of what it seemed like it needed and also having the student version which was the baby step approach to that was the thing that kind of proved to be a valuable inroad because what I did was pretty basic because it had to be able to play in flash yeah. which is obviously not particularly robust and (laughs) especially in 2005 uh, of what you could do and so Having not only the hardware of the PS3, but Sony's music department backing me up uh, to, you know, Monty Mudd and Paul Fox, uh, two extraordinary kind of music production guys. They have more specific titles than that, but they were very hands-on in making that project happen where I would say, here's what I want the music to do, and they would actually go into, I think back then it was Scream, which is a program they don't use anymore, uh, but the the music scripting software that right. makes it behave the way it's supposed to. Because the other thing is that Flow has no sound design separate from its score. Exactly, it's all yeah. one thing. Right. It's the only time I've ever really done sound and score, yeah. because in my mind it's all score and there just basically is no sound, yeah, discrete yeah. sound, Foley kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it wasn't really a matter of marrying the images to the music. It, they both were created together. It would be like Genova would say, here's a, a creature that I am interested in having in the game, and we want it to kind of feel a little silly or something. So I'd, like, write sound effects for its various interactions and, and start creating musical... It's an elaborate kind of looping system. Uh, what were you seeing at the time? Were you seeing any kind of just concept early... Uh, clips or were you just looking at art like what were you writing to uh funny enough i just came across it the other day <laughs> um it we had a design document that uh-huh. was literally just printed out of word yeah initially and then prototypes of the game and, right, the, right. and, it, and it, but it all scales up that's the thing music drafts were written at every step uh-huh. so it it's not like the film process of delineating exactly. into pre-production production post-production and especially on a game like that where, where the score is half the experience because exactly. it's, it's the entire audio. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was just a lot of wild experimentation and a lot of things not working and, and just not knowing, not thinking about the fact that this is going to go out in front of millions of people. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was going to school still. My head was not thinking in so broad a sense, but it was like, oh, it's just working with... My friends that just now their office is at Sony in in Santa Monica, but it's still just yeah. like the band, you know, Kelly Santiago, our in- incredible producer in Genova, and, and this core group of that of the people of that game company, 
which of course many of whom I worked together, uh, I worked again with on, on Journey, it just felt like the band yeah, yeah. at rehearsal or something. Right. Very simple. So let's uh, continue with that game company. So years later, we'll skip ahead a little bit, and um, when Journey came along, um, what ha- how what what changed? I guess when that game started. I mean, that was it was a bit, a bit of a gap between flow. And two years, two yeah. Years. So, did you feel more? Uh, I think something like that. Like, I mean, were you a better composer at this point? Did you feel like God? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this, I mean, this again a similar thing where this music is the core of everything. There's sound effects in this one, and and I yes. remember playing the game for the first time, and I, I think I played it literally all the way through. I think like two and a half, three hours, and I just like I couldn't put it down. And it's such an emotional, visceral experience, and I wasn't expecting that. And and um, it felt almost like a film narrative. It didn't feel... Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. In, in its structure and pacing and yeah. three-act structure, yeah, but it, definitely. So when you guys were kind of initially talking about that concept, what, what, what did the music in those early discussions, like what were kind of this, like what does the music need to be for this game? Well, so the, I definitely had, you know, evolved... I mean, it was only, like I said, two-ish years, yeah. I think, later, because they did Flower in between, which I wasn't a part of, right. but which I, you know, we stayed in touch, obviously. I play-tested it as they were going. The composer of Flower, Vince, is is a friend and someone who I admire, and and so I was kind of on the sidelines of that, and then as soon as Flower shipped, Genova called me again and said, I want to go to dinner and tell you about the next game and see what you think. Mm-hmm. Maybe you would be interested and we had this conversation about Joseph Campbell and the Hero of a Thousand Faces, mm-hmm. and he said, I want to make a game about the hero's journey. And he had the basics pretty well thought out, you know, of you see a kind of distant mountain or something, yeah. and you just, the idea is that you, that you travel there, but you go through this metaphorical progression of a human life, you know, adolescence and youth and then a middle age kind of, Cynicism, and then yeah. on to this kind of purity of transcendence. Yeah. And he had a lot of notions, for example, the idea that most games you could say are analogous to novels, where you pick it up, you put it down, you mm-hmm. come back to it for maybe a month or two weeks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally you'll hardcore binge in three days and spend ten hours a day on it or whatever, but they're meant to be a long-form yeah. thing. And he said... Like a movie, but more analogous to reading a poem. Journey is supposed to be hyper-concentrated, sit down, one sitting, and so much so that if you pause and come back the next day, you'll probably actually lose a lot. Lose because the momentum. Momen- the, yeah. Exactly. The momentum yeah. of that experience is is not a trivial part of it. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that half of a Shakespeare, you know, you read seven lines of a Shakespeare yeah. sonnet, come back the next day, you're pretty much ruined it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so he rattled off these ideas of what the ambition of the game was. And the other huge ambition was he wanted to make a game that had this really emotional core in a multiplayer mechanic. And he said, I want a game where you can go online and meet a random stranger and walk away feeling like this person made my life better. Because all the online gaming at that point was World of Warcraft and, and uh, you know, Call of, or, uh, uh, Counter-Strike yeah. and EverQuest and mm-hmm. games where sometimes players are very nice to each other, but it's basically like, I want to fuck you up. Yeah. And, and absolutely make you know <laughs> mercilessly that I beat you. A ten-year-old kid beating. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And I'm ten years younger than you. 
Exactly, and I have to go do my, you know, homework now. Mom is calling, but I still kicked your ass. Exactly. Genova said, you know, why should online gaming be like that? And so I remember he explained all this in almost an elevator pitch kind of way, and I said, you know, at that point I was about 24, and I said, I've been a gamer. I was a gamer since my earliest memories. I was a gamer before I ever got into music. And so... I had a long-running, lifelong passion for games, and I had reached just enough past my kind of childhood, basically, that I said to him, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to make that game, even though I would never have been able to say that until you've just described it. But I remember resonating so strongly, I thought, "I'm, I'm past the chapter in my life where I'm all excited by, look how much more realistic those explosions look. Now it's like, a game that has an emotional offering yeah. that is more universal and that is more mature. Genova had another th- kind of tentpole philosophy that mature content is sorely lacking in games. Yeah. The irony is we always say rated M for mature if it has a lot of like sex and drugs and right. you know tits, ass, and gore kind of thing. And he says that's all juvenile. The irony is there's nothing mature about ogling women on a Grand Theft Auto cover. He says that's all stuff that's like, it's even questionable if it should be, you know, for 15-year-old boys, but that's the primary demographic one way or the other. And he said, I want to make games that are actually mature the way that Hamlet is mature or the way that that, um, Hemingway is mature or, or, you know, J.D. Salinger. You read it when you're 20 and it, and it, raises a lot of questions probably. Yeah. You think, I don't know that I even understood that. And then you read it again at 30, and it means something completely different to you now. Yeah. Because it's like it somehow ages with you. Yeah, exactly. And then you read it again at 40, and you think, I can't believe I, th- I thought that this resonated at 30. My life is so much more about what this is now. And, th- and there are those works, and we all have kind of our treasured ones, but he said, that's mature content. Something yeah. that reveals layers and, and actually teaches you about yourself. Yeah. And it, can, and it can make you face hard truths about yourself, all that kind of thing. He said, that's the kind of game I want to make. Now, Flow and Flower, he wanted, those were explorations of the same thing, yeah, yeah. but they were simpler. Journey, he was going, that by channeling Joseph Campbell, he's able to get at something that's pretty universal to the human experience, because that's Joseph Campbell's MO. Yeah. And he explained all that, and I said, I have no idea if that's even possible in a game form. I have no idea, if, even if you made that game, if an audience would embrace that game but I want to work on you with that game right. and I literally walked to my car and by the time I got to my car I left myself a voicemail where I said okay solo cello bah, 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 bah. and I called Tina Guo and I called Amy Tatum two musicians I work with from day one of my career and I said I need you to meet me in my studio in an hour and a half the first hour was spent going from Santa Monica to Burbank <laughs> and then uh, I wrote out quickly this theme. Yeah. They recorded it. I added some MIDI string orchestra behind the very end of the piece, a little 90 second, very simple thing. But I thought this this is so much about the, the solo experience of walking through this terrain. It has to be built around solos and, I, and mm-hmm. the cello just seems like it has to be and I don't have a explanation. It just, it just needed to be yeah. a singular voice and then I there was something about dialogue you know, the, the multiplayer thing. That's why I decided two solos the bass flute yeah, that Amy yeah. played. And that piece, you know, we later, I 
titled it Nascence, and it's the first track on the Journey album now, and, it, and it's 100% unchanged from like the voicemail I left myself driving away from that meeting. And I don't attribute, again, much like everything else, I don't attribute that to me. Genova hit me so hard with this concept that I thought, it's it's just suddenly vomiting out of me. You know, it's right. one of those just, again, I felt I felt so lucky. And I sent it and they said, yeah, this feels was like a journey. Was instinct that, that, that does that? Or were you reflecting on, I, I felt this before, I've known this before, I've known this feeling before? I or, wouldn't have said it consciously, but I think it was that yeah. idea of I've waited my whole life right, for this, right. uh, this game yeah. that I would want as a gamer. And, and uh, it was this insane, surreal luck to me that I was having the opportunity to actually participate in creating that game because I badly wanted to play that game. Yeah. Of course, the irony in all this is I have never and will never have the true player experience with Journey. Exactly. You can't see it through the lens of having not built it yeah. or been part of it, I should say. Right. And so the, I always envy people that, like the story you told where you yeah. said, you know, I wasn't expecting it to be emotional and all yeah. that. I mean... It's like, I, I wonder what that's like, because we worked so hard, <laughs> and, it, and it sucked for so long. I mean, it really, yeah, that great momentum out of the gate, but then three years of slogging. Yeah. And it, and it struggled a lot, especially the very end. The end of the game and the tail end of the process mm -hmm. was brutally difficult for everyone on the team. Wow. And so it, it, it's kind of a miracle that it even came off, frankly. Yeah, yeah and I mean, when it was released, I mean... And you saw the reviews coming in, and like people's accounts totally reflecting on it, and it's just like it just resonated with so many people, and it's just, it's and it's great because there is no dialogue; it's just it's a universal experience. There's, there's no language barrier; it's just music and images, and yeah, all by design, very yeah, much. You know, a game where gender, age, you know, religion, yeah, any game, relative gamer experience. The kind of unofficial motto of TGC was. We want to make games for people that don't know yet that they love games. Yeah. Because they would say, think about movies, think about books. There's this weird notion of identifying as a gamer yeah. that all other media don't have. No yeah. one says, especially shyly, yeah. I'm a movie goer, a, <laughs> <-er>. a filmer, <laughs> uh, a cinemaphile. Yeah. People don't, uh, a cinephile, people don't, uh, it's just... What kind of movies do you like? Exactly. Do you go often or do you go rarely? But it's not this binary, I am or I'm not. And yeah. games are still pushing there, but TGC made it their mission to bring more people into the fold who previously would have thought games aren't for me because all they see are the billboard ads for Call of Duty. Yeah. And they think, if that's what games are, that's not for me. I mean, our, our producer, Kelly, in the middle of working on Journey, got into a very famous sort of Twitter war with Roger Ebert, who was essentially being that voice, saying mm -hmm. games will never be art because all they are are yeah, Call of Duty yeah. explosions, which of course I would say, well, first off, why can't that be art? Exactly. But second, uh, that's so reductive of what games can be. And I, you could hardly blame him because that's the marketing machine of the big AAA studio. Oh, for sure. And I've talked to other game composers about that as it's a, you know, uh, Games have always been seen as this thing for kids. For you know, you grow because you grow up playing. Not games. just kids, but like, like socially reclusive yeah. freaks. Yeah, that don't go out, and don't go. You know. Yeah. And, and it's and it's this thing where yeah, because people are like oh, it's just shooting and 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 all this stuff. But I mean, I grew up playing like Medal of Honor, and Resident Evil, and where these scores and games were. It was, yeah, it was shooting and, and kind of horror stuff, but still there was a deeper level to it. And oh yeah, and it's it's a completely, and I think it's. 
progressed a lot as to where games are seen as kind of in this art form. I still feel like there's a separation between games and film and television in, in terms oh, of storytelling well, it, but... Yes, that that's still in its infancy. Yeah. We're basically where movies were as they were approaching the late 30s, mm -hmm. where the art form is starting to get really well understood technically, yeah. and a few genuine masterpieces have been made. Uh, you know, like... The, the King Kongs and Wizard of Oz's mm -hmm. and Casablanca's and there have been a few of those Citizen Kane right. um, but the future the, the Star Wars is the, the James Bonds the, the all those things that completely changed the language of cinema you know the the, mm -hmm. the David Lean movies and the, uh, things that pushed the boundaries of cinema and all those 50s, 60s, 70s I don't know that we've hit that yet. Yeah. I like the idea to think that we're still decades from that, you know. And the, and and the other thing to remember is the audience is still comparatively small. Fair, you know, if yeah. you you know you have a game that's considered a a mega hit if it sells like five million units, ten million units. You know, right. Assassin's Creed, the entire franchise has grossed over a hundred million units across like eight or nine major releases. Yeah, six or well, seven now sort of flagship titles and a few big large scale DLCs. Well. A hundred million people alone saw, or probably far more than that, saw like Rogue One. Yeah. I mean, I and, and when you figure the long tail that movies have because of being able to air on TV and on mm -hmm. Netflix and all that, that number could easily reach a billion by a decade later. No game, maybe Mario or something, yeah. if you add every iteration across, you know, Game Boy and everything <laughs> that has ever existed, maybe you're talking a few hundred million people. Yeah. Um, I'd be shocked if it was approaching a billion. And so even though games as an industry is making more money than film, uh, its audience reach, cultural penetration kind of thing, is still entirely ahead of it, which I find immensely exciting because yeah, it means we're still on the front lines of this. It's untapped and there's so much more <sighs> room for growth. And, and I'm sitting there playing something like I just, you know, Zelda and Breath of the Wild is oh, yeah. beautiful. And how amazing is it that a single like, franchise... A game 30 years into a franchise can be a game everyone's saying, well, this is the game of the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's an amazing game. Kind of, we'll stay on the line with that game company. Um, and just recently, um, you guys did Abzu, which was another fantastic journey. And, and well, at FYI, Abzu is not actually that game company. Oh, that's um, right. I'm it's sorry. called Giant Squid. And yeah. what it, but you're not, um, <laughs> you're not wrong to make that, that confusion because... Matt Nava was the art director on Flower and Journey, right. and he left and started his own company as the creative director called Giant Squid. And so there's a, between he and I, there's a DNA connectivity right. and a kind of philosophical, Abzu yeah. is an obvious kind of third cousin or whatever to, to, to Journey. I mean, right. they're clearly in the same family of types of experiences. Right. Um, and, but it is actually a totally different team Absolutely. beyond yeah. the, the leader. So when you guys started working on this, on this, uh, experience. I mean, this is a completely under. It's underwater. Again, it's kind of this obscure narrative. You're kind of discovering pieces of a story as you go along, and and it's visually so vivid and, and immersive. And again, music. If there's no dialogue, it's just it's score again. So, how how was this experience? I guess in terms of creating this musical world different than what has come before. Like, were we pulling out? the fact that it was underwater make a huge difference on what you were choosing for music? I it's mean, funny. I think the underwater thing did play subconsciously because one of the first things that I thought about was the idea of a big, lush harp ensemble. Mm -hmm. My very first pitch to him was what if the entire score is choir and not an only high, sort of top-heavy 
uh, sopranos, altos, tenors, hmm. and tenor like tenor ones, and uh, and kind of a chamber choir, twenty people or so, and a solo oboe, and harps, seven harps, and I and then you know kind of. Th- little wispy electronics that I would program myself. I said, I like the idea of a completely non-orchestral score. Mm. As it developed, the orchestra kind of crept into the vocabulary of the score, but it still stuck very much to this idea of harps and voices and oboe. I wanted oboe to be, for Abzu, what the cello had been for Journey. Mm, And so the, the funny thing is the... The obvious comparison to th- for that is Bernard Herrmann's score Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, which features like a dozen harps. The funny thing is that never occurred to me while working on it, even though I had, I had loved that score growing up. So yeah. I think it had figured into my subconscious. Because in my mind, the harps was about the fact that you can create this wash of movement that doesn't sound like strings holding or like a glom of sound, but it's more like the swarm of a beehive where right. billions yeah, yeah, yeah. of little clinks and plinks mm-hmm. make a composite warm pillow yeah. very different than sustaining instruments like virtually the rest of the orchestra winds yeah. brass percussion or not uh, winds brass strings all creating a continuous sound yeah. it, it create a continuous sound through a bazillion little interactions and i wasn't trying to literally say it feels like a big school of fish but there's a natural compatibility there and i just liked the big lush warmth of it and the other thing was Abzu, we had a nice budget to really produce it how we wanted to produce it, and so I was able to just charge straight ahead, knowing that that was going to be possible. Mm-hmm. And and it just was about you know once you come up with that basic palette, then the idea is how do I develop this under its own principles yeah, yeah. and stop looking outward and just see where this takes me. And so once we had that, then it just kind of became its own experiment, like any other project, and like many others, it was a solid. Two three years of experiments. Yeah, that's another thing that you know, game game development takes so much longer, and it's just oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's such a continuous process where it's like, oh, in a film, you come in in the last when everything is done, and just like, oh, there you go. Yeah, you've got picture. four weeks, and <laughs> give us a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, and and I've certainly I've, I mean done quite a few you know indie films, uh, and pretty accustomed to the four to eight week turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny how that doesn't phase me if someone's proposing a film, but then they say we have two months on a game, and I think, well, how is that even possible? <laughs> and it's weird how I have to stop and remind myself yeah. that that is totally possible. But, you know, I think the shortest I've ever done a, a large-scale project on a game was like Assassin's Creed was ten months or something. Wow. That was over three hours of score. But even still, you could do like ten movies in ten months, so... <laughs> And which could end up being, or you know, a season of television yeah. could, could be vastly more music. So it's weird how the brain, it's sort of like I won't pay a dollar for that app, but I'll yeah. pay five dollars for this coffee. Right, exactly. Somehow, just... three hours of music on a TV show over ten months <laughs> feels extremely luxurious, but three hours on a game feels like we're gonna really crank. <laughs> it's totally bizarre how the brain doesn't do an apples to apples conversion exactly. there. Exactly, the comparisons there. Um, yeah, but, but mentioning Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which was, um, you know. I loved it so much. I mean, I liked Black Flag, but Assassin's Creed is what's kind of old world London and, yeah, and open, open world score, open world game. Um, how did that differ, I guess, composing for an open world game like that, where you have to create music for when the player is randomly going wherever, versus, and then you, you know you have the missions, then you have kind of cinematics. I mean, um, I guess how do you 
structure your process on something like that? Well, it, it was hard because it was the first game I had done like that. I've, yeah. I've done a few open world kind of things since then. The irony is people perceive Journey as open world. But it's, it's, it's very tightly linear. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. it's, it's not even remotely open world. And exactly. Abzu was the same. But because it just has this broad landscape kind of mm. feel, there's this perception. But it's always guiding you, yeah. Very, very much. AC obviously is actually open world, but the nice thing is, for me, I had been a fan of that franchise from the first mm -hmm. game. So I went in knowing the basic bones of it yeah. really well. And I had a lot of grievances uh, of how music had been handled in previous games. Mm -hmm. It always drove me nuts playing it because one of the problems with open world games is the music tends to become very mechanistic and it becomes be about building systems that trigger yeah. scores as opposed to thinking as a storyteller because the philosophy of an open world game is you the player are the storyteller. You're right. We're giving you the sandbox, the tool set, you go create your narrative. Right. Well, other than, you know, Minecraft or kind of, you know, No Man's Sky or a few others, mm -hmm. even open world games are still very narrative. And yeah. Assassin's Creed has a very much a storyline. Yeah, a very strong one. So yeah, I said I... Yeah. Totally. And it's actually kind of a complicated sort of sci-fi yeah, story that, that people... Yeah, and so um, they... So I said to them, I... When they hired me, I, I said, with all due respect... I have a list of things that I haven't liked about the previous games, mm. and I would love if we could try to do it a different way. And to my, again, I just want to keep saying this over and over again, it was really lucky. The audio director that I worked with, Lydia, uh, at Ubisoft in, in Quebec, was one of the best collaborators I've ever had in my career, because not only was she totally open to any of those kind of implementation mm. strategies I was interested in, and ways to really try to pour the music like wax down into the cracks of the score of the game. She also was completely fearless about any musical choices that I wanted to make. I mean, she said, you have no, you are not beholden to any prior AC. You are, in fact, you are not beholden to anything. I want you to just create yeah. and, and do what seems right. And I'll give you feedback if I think it's not working. And other than I think the very first kind of prototype combat cue that I wrote, I, I basically got no notes on the entire score. Wow. Th three hours of music of almost entirely all version ones. And then when they weren't, it was because I was not satisfied and I went back and rewrote it on my own. And that's insane. I couldn't believe how lucky I was. And so to answer specifically what you're saying, though, on that one, she... Uh, what I pr Rather, what I pitched was... The open world systems need to still be tied to the narrative. So, for example, you get into a fight mm -hmm. randomly on a street corner. Yeah, punch a gangster. Gang yeah. And I said, there needs to be, we can develop a whole elaborate system for how this music behaves. Yeah. But that, let's divide the game. I wish we could have done it even more granularly, but there's just only so much music you can write before it becomes so unwieldy. And also you start getting into like memory footprint issues and things that movies don't ever have to deal with. <laughs> uh, but I said, let's divide the game into a three-act structure. And so I get into a street brawl right here at, you know, in front of Buckingham Palace, and I've only completed the first mission of the game. The music that's going to play is oh. early game combat music. Yeah. Now, if I progress through the story and then come back, back to this exact same spot... To music that reflects the advancement of the story is uh -huh. what we'll play. So I wrote three complete 
sort of scores that once you move past the threshold, you would never hear that stuff ever again. And all, and all the open world stuff behaved this way. And so there were cues that were inaccessible, either in part or in whole, until you pass certain narrative thresholds. For example, there's also these open world kind of exploration cues that would trigger up on rooftops where we wanted there to be this moment of respite kind of to take in the beauty of the landscape and just the, of the splendor of London. Because mm-hmm. the game, they, they created oh my God, an yeah. unbelievable <laughs> Victorian London yeah. setting. And we wanted to lean into the beauty of that. And all the ACs have, have in, you know, done that with the whole... Uh, synchronizing, you know, yeah, what we, what we called, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and so uh, the leap of faith, blah, blah, blah. Right. And um, so that's a standard mechanic in the games. And they've always been about kind of calm and almost zen-like of yeah. fusing with the environment. And so this was no exception. Well, I said, what if there's kind of quasi-operatic vocals that come in, in English, singing from from uh, Nahum Tate's libretto to the famous Henry Purcell English language opera Dido and Aeneas, which would have been the most famous English opera known at the time of when Syndicate wow. takes place, it was two hundred years old uh, years old already by that point. But it's still to this day one of the most famous English operas. Yeah. And I said, what if I'm, I I went and looked through the whole libretto and found text that within certain contexts would sound like it's describing the events of the narrative of AC. At least loosely, and I'm, I've chose them along those points within the story where then you go up onto a rooftop, and if you haven't crossed that point yet, you hear a mix of the cue that's purely orchestral. Wow. And then if you have crossed that point, <laughs> then there's vocals describing literally where you are, or circuitously where you are in the narrative. And like it's almost singing directly at it's almost like a Greek chorus that's yeah. practically singing right at you at the player. And again, I thought they're never gonna go for this. It's too weird. Games always want ethereal right. kind of oohs and ahs because it's not intrusive and it's lovely. And then I said, what if we had like a Greek chorus basically? And and a, a, one of a million times that I thought they would say, Oh hell no, and they well, they went for it. And and so building systems like that where it's very aware of where you are in the narrative. Now there are a few exceptions. And there's also a million things I wish I could yeah. change and fix and add more music still. And but yeah, it was a it was a huge challenge. And and um, I, again, I was very lucky uh, to work with a music supervisor on that project, a uh, music editor who was so spectacular at scripting this stuff. Because I'm so anal about the transitions feeling like music, you know. Yeah. Because I you know you watch a movie, and the scene. You know, think of, like, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, River Phoenix. Mm. I mean, uh, Last Crusade, River Phoenix, horse ride on the back of the circus train and all that. You know, the scene ends as he's arriving at home Mm. yelling, Dad, Dad, and he's got the cross of Coronado. And, and, you know, you see Sean Connery says, read it in Latin and all that. (laughs) The You know, the Williams Cube beautifully comes in for a landing and glides to a stop as the scene ends. Well, so often in games... The, the software that is driving the parameters that are ultimately responsible for driving the music triggers the all stop and yeah. some horrible transition just yanks you out or even worse, it just stops. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. Like it's not music. Yeah. The, or it just fades. That's even worse yeah. to me is when you hear it just kind of da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, you, you walk away from the danger and just fades away. Oh, it's <laughs> awful. And so I said, you know, and so I'm always obsessively and I don't think we've made the perfect game score yet that mm-hmm. really just feels like it's 
it's compo it's it's actively being composed while you're playing. Yeah, yeah. That's my dream. There have been a lot. We, every year it's better. Every year we get closer and closer as an industry, and there have been a lot of really good yeah. scores pushing that boundary. But to me, it's it's in the end the the perfect game score is going to be some combination of procedurally generated music and probably AI real time composed music in tandem with. Yeah. with the composer's work and pre-recorded elements because that will l let you be fully nimble and that will be really exciting but it's still yeah. a little ways off. And then you, you scare people when you say that with our AI. Ah, Luddites. <laughs> Embrace it, man. Go see Hidden Figures. Who's the hero of Hidden Figures? It's Octavia Spencer saying, let's learn how to program right. these IBMs. That's that's what composers need to be. If, yeah. if the future of composing is writing algorithms, so be it. We're still expressing ourselves. Exactly. Wow. That's because yeah, because it's, I think it's impossible to. I mean, the game moves as the player moves. It has to adapt. Oh in yeah. Real time. It's absolutely so, for sure. Um, you did two other really great games uh, that I love: the Banner Saga and the Banner Saga Two, which is um, thanks. Um, kind of RPG, uh, very stylistic. Uh, Oh, I love those games. Yeah, so creating those worlds is a completely different world. I mean, we're, when you when you kind of see these, like whether if you see the concept art for the full for the first time, I mean, where, where I guess where's the the sound of that world come from? That one was was unique because they financed the game through Kickstarter, the That's first right. one. Yeah. And I had no experience with anything like that. And I, Journey had been out for a couple months, and I just get this cold call from these guys in Texas. They had all been Bioware developers working on Star Wars The Old Republic. Mm, yeah, and yeah. before that, Knights of the Old Republic. And they were just like, look, we can, they were, you know, middle tier folks. They they had real responsibilities, were doing high level contributions to the game, but they weren't the creative director or something. Yeah. And they, they, were, they were feeling restless. We have ideas of our own. We want to make, you know, our own games and and, and I think also, especially in the case of the artist, he, he, he had done 10 years of concept art for Star Wars games and was like, believe it or not, it's possible to get sick of working on Star Wars. <laughs> we would all think that's impossible, right. but he said, you know, <laughs> I've just reached my cap on this stuff. And so they quit their jobs, and these three guys, and, and formed a company called Stoic Studio. And they were really interested in a few basic things. They were interested in turn-based strategy yeah. as opposed to real-time strategy and hearkening back to really basic but deep systems like chess yeah. or checkers and, and especially non-random role kind of like chess has no random dice component to it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's all about seeing what you've got and trying to make the best strategy. And it's remarkably deep. I mean, people have been playing chess for thousands of years yeah. and there's still no... You know, like, it's not a completed science where there's just nowhere for innovation anymore. Right. And so they, they were very intrigued by that. And also, Viking mythology was something that they felt, you know, there's a lot of high fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones kind of stuff. But they said Viking mythology has a very different kind of tenor to it. And they were interested in exploring that. And also, myth, uh, fantasy outside of dragons and magic and things yeah. like that and, and getting it a little bit more personal and and then the art direction of this Ivan Earl inspired hand-drawn 60s yeah, Disney gorgeous. thing yeah. oh man and so they very pitchable because of that yeah. and so they were saying well look if we pool our savings we can maybe go a year and make a simple little indie game and put it out there and see what happens and a friend of theirs said 
you know, do you know about Kickstarter? Kickstarter was still pretty new, and yeah. and and it wasn't really being used to finance games so much. And and when it was, it was like ten thousand dollars to make my student game come to life, sort of thing. Right. And even then, there were no things that were famous really. Um, the game that blew the the doors open was Double Fine's uh, Broken Age, which was just at the time called Double Fine Adventure. Tim Schafer wanted to go back to the old days of LucasArts of making games like Grim Fandango and The Dig and Full Throttle, yeah. and he used Kickstarter to do it, and he got like, you know, it was like 50,000 backers or something, and they raised a few million dollars. <laughs> and that set this Kickstarter gold rush off. And the Banner Saga had already set up their campaign, and it was all queued up, ready to go, and then this thing happened with Double Fine, and they were ready to hit the red button, basically. And so it's just another one of these stories of incredible luck, great right place, right time. Because three guys that you've never heard of pitching a new IP in a genre that's not totally mainstream, you know, turn-based strategy meets RPG, that's not a genre that's, you know, got tens of thousands of titles in it. I right. mean, a real-time strategy is much more mainstream within the world of strategy games. Right, yeah. The closest comparisons they had were Final Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem, and, and like, XCOM. Mm. And so uh, they put this thing out there, and within 24 hours, they hit, like, $300,000 wow. against a $100,000 ask. And they suddenly realized, we, we can broaden the team to be other than just ourselves. So they had all just played Journey and just cold called me and said, do you want to score our game? <laughs> you know, and you can do whatever you want. It's yours to score. We just want you to do whatever you think's best. And so their Kickstarter was still going. So I said, what if we tried to raise even more money to do this score right? Yeah. Um, and so we put all these music-related uh, uh, Kickstarter rewards in there, and people bought it up, and so we ended up having a serious budget. I mean, because, you know, this thing ended up raising three quarters of a million dollars that only had to be shared amongst a couple of people, basically. Exactly, yeah. So we were able to put some serious dollars into the score and, again, I had, like, two years to write it and so I played it relentlessly and yeah. I loved it. I loved the story. You know, they, they had planned it as a trilogy working on number three exactly, right now. Yeah. And they told me the whole story of all three games in our first meeting and, and I got so excited and and it was the first time I'd ever started a score where I knew that at least if all goes well, there will be sequels and that there are themes I can be thinking about that won't actually really matter yet, but will matter later. And it was really right. exciting. I'd never had an opportunity like that. And the other thing that was weird about it was I, as I was writing the score, I started off just kind of generally orchestral. I tried a few really novel, weird experiments of some heavily electronic stuff, but it just wasn't quite feeling right. And, and so started playing around with orchestral palettes, and I realized I'm not really using the strings. There was one cue where I had these high violins holding, but otherwise it was all like brass chorales. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm all about creating these weird Kobayashi Maru com <laughs> compositional situations where it, I take a lot of stuff off the table, and then I have to try to get really creative with what I've got. And that's right. that's clearly inspired by those stories of people like Herman and Goldsmith scoring the Twilight Zone with like six instruments where they say, okay, how about a timpani and five piccolos? Right. And you think, okay, what can I do with that? And it turns out a lot if you're willing to embrace that challenge. Yeah. And so I had been doing that, and especially in the films that I'd been scoring, which were so low budget, you know, like I did a movie called Grace where it was all the sounds of processed horseflies and then eight contrabass clarinets at Abbey Road. And that's pretty much the whole score. And, and I 
was terrified because I thought, how could I possibly get a whole score out of this? But right. then you end up, you have to. That's all you've left yourself. Yeah. And so I'm a big fan of that. Abzu was no different. Seven harps, oboe, choir. Yeah. What, what can I do? And so this one I said, what if I take the strings completely off the table and I hire a real, like a college wind ensemble? And we get, you know, a lot of horns and trombones. And because the other thing was, this is a sad story. These yeah. games are about the end of the world where you can't save the world. The idea is how can I face the end with dignity? Which I kind of likened to Battlestar Galactica where it's just about trying to hold your head up. It's not about we're gonna retake Caprica from the side. It's like that, that's not gonna happen. Yeah. Just do your best and yeah. try to hold your loved ones close. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought really quiet, somber music mm -hmm. by you know, 12 French horns and seven trombones and two sets of timpani and all. Everybody playing quietly will feel heavy mm. and full of that kind of gravitas, but it's still relatively quiet. And I had remembered going to a premiere of John Corleano's Third Symphony at Carnegie Hall when I lived in New York, which was for wind ensemble. And the conductor and commissioner was this guy, Jerry Junkin, and that piece had changed my life. I'd never been so affected by a piece of music ever in my life as by oh. Corleano. It's called Circus Maximus required study for all composers and it was for enormous wind ensemble it was like 25 trumpets and i mean the thing was gigantic wow. 60 70 piece group but no strings so you take the 30 or 40 loudest people and double them <laughs> and uh and it was all antiphonal all around the audience you know like 20 trumpets literally in a circle around you and all that stuff it's very theatrical and so i called this conductor jerry junkin in texas and i said i want to work with you on this game I want to work with your wind ensemble. And he said, well, we can use the UT you know, wind ensemble in, in UT Austin, which is who commissioned that Corleano piece. But he said, I also conduct the number one professional wind ensemble basically in the world, the Dallas Winds. What if we worked with them and recorded in the Dallas, you know, the, My the Meyerson Symphony Center that, where the Dallas Symphony and the Dallas Winds play? So I said, I love that challenge, you know, not a scoring stage. Yeah. And also, they're not wired for clicks or anything like that. So it's like, okay, we're just going to go in full steam. And this ensemble had never recorded a score of any kind. They'd only done albums. Now, Grammy-nominated albums, they were serious musicians. Yeah. But um, the, our world, totally foreign to them. So it's just like, let's just own that. So did, did that with them, and it was an unbelievably great experience, and then duplicated that with the Colorado Symphony on Banner Saga 2. Same thing. Dismissed the strings and kind of turned the Colorado Symphony into the Colorado Symphony wind ensemble. Uh, and it was incredible, and planning to do it again on on the third one, you know, it was it was so much fun. That sounds so creatively rewarding too. It's just like oh, it was great. And the other part of it also that was so fun was featuring a few soloists, where because it had been crowdfunded, I yeah. thought the internet gave birth to this game. So what if the internet is also part of the core of the music? And so I went on YouTube and found a bunch of these YouTuber. So musicians yeah. that do like the multi-camera, multi-tracking yeah. stuff. And I kind of found a few that I thought were really extraordinary. Maluka, who's who's from Mexico, who had done this Skyrim cover that blew me away. Um, a guy, Peter Hollins, who lives up in Oregon, and it, he, he's like a machine. I mean, his YouTube channel is one of the, the best that there is for this kind of thing. And then there was a violinist who had done a Journey cover right around this time that was unbelievable. It's one of the best Journey covers anyone's ever done. Wow. And I'm very lucky to say there's quite a few of those. Uh, but hers shot this elaborate music video, and her name's Taylor Davis. And so I said, the one string will be Taylor Davis's violin, 
and then the singer Peter and the singer Maluka, and that will be kind of the the soloistic nucleus of the score, yeah. and then we'll flank them by this giant wind ensemble. <laughs> Uh, and for Banner Saga 2, I built on that. The three of them came back, but then I had also found, uh, again, on YouTube, this Icelandic band called Arstither, where they were singing a hymn in a train station, and the video had gone viral, and I just cold-called them and said, you want to sing on my score? Because they can do... It's a band that... Yeah. I, I like them. They're like Icelandic Kansas. They sound like a 60s <laughs> organic wow. kind of rock yeah. group, but in that acoustic kind of way that's just phenomenal yeah. great musicians they all play strings and guitar and their production is so good and um, and they can sing like four and five part harmony no problem and so I said what if you guys sang on this and so I wrote all this stuff for them on Banner Saga 2 that was uh, just so much fun I mean it really so I'm still trying to figure out what the third one yeah. who I'm going to add now again <laughs> uh, expand it, yeah. yeah I got a few <laughs> ideas that are some ambitious goals but um yeah it, it, it's i feel so, i'm gonna be crushed when the third one theoretically will be will be done and yeah I'll, i've loved having this franchise in my life the last five years i mean it's just so special absolutely so speaking of uh banner saga um you did get you did make some headlines you know with the afm and that that whole <laughs> yes. thing uh that, that kind of came up because of that and you stood your ground and and you, you fought for what was right and um, since then, I mean, looking well, certainly what I believed in and what I believe was right. Right. And I'm all for, I'm always I remain always open to the idea that of dissenting opinions on that subject. Yeah. And I have many musician friends that I cherish here in the LA community who did have con who did disagree with me mm. on my feelings on that, and I have no issue with that. Just for what it's worth. Because right. well, yeah, I appreciate yeah. you phrasing it as standing up for what's right, but yeah. I don't want to be so monolithic as to say was it was that black and white. Yeah. It felt that way for me. Right. And I have a hard time. I, I really want to see the other perspective on mm -hmm. it. Um, but uh, but I am open that there is one. Right. Anyway, I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> so just uh, has anything in, in your... In your point of view, has anything progressed in, in situations like that I mean, in the industry in terms of business and, and being conducted in that way? And uh, Well, I mean, in the last week, Gary Scheiman uh, conducted and even live-streamed an AFM score from Fox. Mm -hmm. That and, and earlier, I think probably last year, but I can't remember exactly when, uh, a composer friend of mine, Gordy Hab, uh, did Halo Wars 2 at Fox with an AFM orchestra. Uh, and and both of those two years ago, I would have said never going to happen. Uh, so very recently, I can say it seems like there may be a corner turning there. Mm. The main improvement, though, there's two threads to that discussion. There's how we treat fellow human beings, yeah. and how and what the AFM should regard its job is, which is if their job is protecting work opportunities for musicians shutting out entire industries is a very suspicious way to achieve that goal yeah, yeah. um and so there's just a fundamental philosophical discussion that and then of course the other thread is just are they working right. so i don't know how much the first one has improved but it appears that there's some hope on the horizon for the second one now i haven't done an afm game score. i've only done one afm game score and it was five years ago a game that sadly 
almost nobody played called Horn, which was a very ambitious for its time uh, iPad, an iOS game. Mm -hmm. It's actually available now on all mobile. I think you can get on Android and iPhone and all the rest of it. And I, they came to me and they said, we want to make this thing a triple-A production, but for mobile, which no one was aspiring to. Like the yeah. Breath of the Wild kind of thing, yeah. no one aspired to games of that scope back then. This right. was only five years ago. Uh, because it was seen like that's not possible. There's no such thing as premium content for any kind of mobile. And of course, Breath of the Wild is a bad example because Switch is very different from iOS. Exactly, yeah. But um, that notwithstanding, they had big dreams. And I said, well, look, if you're willing to put up real money into the score, uh, we can do this with an AFM orchestra. And so we did, and it was one of the most awesome uh, L.A. recording experiences I've ever had because I was able to do all my weird, you know, we had four penny whistles in the orchestra and, and you know, no violas, and it was manufactured a kind of weird viol da gamba and just a kind of a weird combination of, of instruments that was, that was really fun, and it was able to do it all live, all together in the, at the bridge in Glendale. And um, I've not done a single AFM game score, barely score period, uh, AFM since then. Mm -hmm. So there hasn't been a hell of a lot of hope for recording in LA uh, for me. Uh, <laughs> but if there's any happening at all, I'm happy. I mean, it blew my mind when The Force Awakens recorded here. Yeah. That, I thought, would never happen. But if you're John Williams and you don't want to fly to London five times uh, exactly. over the course of six months or whatever it was. Uh, it turns out that's enough leverage. Right. And if you're not John Williams, that's not enough leverage. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, who knows what the future uh, will hold, but it does, look, it does look good. And I, for the record, I have no ill will to anyone at the AFM. I can't say I'm a fan of Ray Hare because I don't believe in intimidation tactics. Mm -hmm. Um, but if, you know, he called me and apologized and we could shake hands, I would say, look, at the end of the day, this was never about you, meaning Ray or mm -hmm. anybody else. It was about wanting to work with the musicians that I see at the coffee shops and that I see. Perfect example, I was at a coffee shop in North Hollywood the other day and I ran into Serena McKinney, who's a violinist who, uh, who I use very often as my concert master here uh, in L.A. And she works on everything. And she was walking into Blake Neely's studio right next to the coffee shop where I happened to be. And she was going to be recording for one of his 40 million uh, <laughs> projects. And it's like, I love that. I love yeah. the fact that there's a community of musicians that, that you see around town. And you go to, you know, I went to have been to a handful of these players' weddings. And, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. It means a lot to me. And so the idea of not being able to work with them is personally distressing. And that was what this was always about for me. It was, I... I I break bread with these people, and they are such fabulous musicians. And yeah. we have these unbelievable world-class facilities here and world-class recording engineers and all this at our fingertips, and we're not using it. And we're not using it for bad reasons. Yeah. So yeah. that was always my issue there. But I'm, I mean, honestly, this is the most I've talked about it in years because I basically let them get mad at me yeah. and, you know, pretend that I was making this moral outrage, which I thought was complete bullshit, um, but they got to, you know, do their their disciplinary actions. Yeah. Um, and then I let it go and quit caring because it was obvious that I was not going to be the force of change. This is going to have had to come from within yeah. the rank and file and or the leadership of the AFM. And I know that John Acosta and Rick Baptist have always been passionate about trying to crack this nut and all power to them. 
And like I said, John appears to be making great headway with this new Gary Scheiman thing and with um, Gordy's uh, project before Gordy and the two Bryans uh, before that, the Halo Wars 2 score. And so I love it. Bring yeah. it on. You know, yeah, yeah. I'll be the first to sign up for it. So there's no resentment or anything like that. And like I said, I, it's a subject I became bored with for yeah, a while yeah, because sure. it just was one of those things that I said, it either pisses me off or it bores me. <laughs> and, it, and it pisses me off because it's untapped talent that's worthy yeah. of the work. Right. So, my two cents, <laughs> plus another dollar fifty. So, kind of looking at the kind of, I mean, I mean, I love your uh, kind of your just your entire career because it's so uh, just versatile and you've, you've conquered different genres and diff games and movies and everything. But kind of just looking at kind of film and 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 games, um, I don't want to ask like, oh, what's the difference between games and and. <laughs> I the, do get that question every time. <laughs> I know you do. What's the difference between? Film directors and let's say game directors when you're working with ah, different teams. Ah, never been asked that. Because I'm I'm I don't I, you, you see the interviews with the film directors and I'm kind of familiar with that process of sure. uh, those relationships. But it seems like just from you talking right now, it's more it's just more like a family than I don't know if it's more like a director composer role role. But I know you have I'm sure close relationships with film directors. But yeah, it is. is there it, a difference? It, 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 it there definitely are. Well, it's interesting. There's a broader spectrum in games mm -hmm. of that kind of role, because for example, on Assassin's Creed, there the scope of that is so large yeah. that there are a few at the very top, kind of senior game directors. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of a few people that are collaborating where one is in charge of the narrative. One is in charge of like the world building. One's in charge of the systems, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the score is completely and totally delegated to an audio director. And it's like the old film days where Fox would make a movie and Alfred Newman was told, you're in charge of the music. You hire the composer, you shepherd the process. And so Alfred Newman would choose a composer and, the mm -hmm. and likewise the director was basically there for the shoot, like a TV show. They're not the same thing as the showrunner. Yeah. The showrunner has the creative vision in television. The director was just the person to make sure the camera's pointed in the right direction and yeah. the actors are getting what they need and all that sort of boots on the ground kind of thing. Much less of the auteur yeah. Tarantino or Spielberg or Wes Anderson or Scorsese kind of idea we have of a director today. Right. And so it, working with a company like Ubisoft or Sony or Microsoft, you end up working with the audio department in a way that's much more like the old Hollywood days and you don't even interact with or have only passing interactions with the closest equivalent to the Spielberg or whoever that project would be, if there even is one. Mm -hmm. But there are also on the hard, you know, extreme of that, Games I've worked on where I am very much interacting with someone who would be ex directly analogous to a film director. Uh, perfect example would be a game that just recently came out that I worked on called Tooth and Tail, yeah, where I was great fun working on it. Yeah. Much smaller team, uh, which is part of why this is the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but it would just same thing on a film. I mean, a film is made by a very small core and then a lot of contractors. Yeah. Um, and the games like this are, are no different. You know, contract out your sound design, contract out your animation, your acting, all of that sort of stuff. And then mm -hmm. the game's principal creative team is half a dozen people. Yeah. And that's films are actually quite similar. You have your producers, your right, yeah. director, your editor, and maybe that's it. And everybody else comes, does their role, and leaves. Mm -hmm. Very few are there through the whole process. 
And so Andy Schatz would be the creative director on Tooth and Tail, and he and I are lockstep in a way that's virtually identical to how I would interact with a filmmaker. And a lot of similar kind of conversations where we're asking ourselves, how does this feel relative right. to how we want it to feel? And what kind of questions does this aesthetic raise? And blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, so sometimes there's massive difference uh, from the interactions you have on a film yeah. with a film director. And I will say also, pound for pound, film directors, they, they study story mm -hmm. and storytelling and the essence of the human experience more than most game directors. Most game directors were something else and then wanted to make their own game. Right. And so quite a few start from a technical position, which would be as if all directors were DPs first or editors first. Yeah. Whereas most directors I worked with uh, were directors, yeah. <laughs> even if they had work prior as editors, being a director was their dream. Yes, and yes. they studied storytelling as a way to arm themselves for being a director. Right. A lot of game developers, it's changing rapidly because especially the educational institutions out there are realizing this is, needs to be something that's taught. And USC has, has been a very powerful force on the game industry in that way because they do teach uh, film theory and storytelling structure and mythology and all those things that master directors need to learn, mm -hmm. they do teach that. I mean, the game program is a subdivision of the cinema program at USC. And to me, oh, that's a powerful thing. It's yeah. not an offshoot of like the computer science degree. It's yeah. part of the storytelling people. I know, and that's what I want to see more of is just, I think just uh, better writing and better kind of storytelling in games. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think that's lacking on these AAA titles where it's like, oh, let's just get the gameplay right. And that's, it, you know, and. Oh, yeah, they'll spend two years designing the tech before they even write the story. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. not uncommon at all. They'll say, okay, we know the game is going to take place like on a spaceship and blah, 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 blah. But things like dialogue. And I mean, I know plenty of actor, voice actors, and motion capture yeah, actors yeah. in games that are getting hired three years into development and yeah. it's being written while they're shooting and and that's that, that's where the nice thing is the games that end up making all the headlines that people say oh there's another way to think of this mm -hmm. are the games where they approach it more like a film like uncharted and above all the last of us, last of us which is fantastic yeah and that's one of those things where it's interesting because i'm not interested in g games being playable movies yeah to me games Journey is, I think, a great example of a game that could never satisfactorily be a film right. because the interaction is what makes it meaningful. Right. And doubling down on that is, to me, what will make games always stand on their own two feet as an art form. What do you so, think about like a Heavy Rain or something like that where it is more like quick time events and stuff like that? But I mean, that I understand the controversy of, mm -hmm. of why the quick time events structure of it is... People basically saying, you know, look, the writing of this is, and the story and the concept behind this is great, and right. this really affected me, but it is borderline a playable yeah. movie. Now, I think if you were to outright own the idea of a playable movie and investigate what that could be, now you're in kind of a new genre of game. Yeah, That's interesting to me. But games that are almost like this deferential slave that won't make eye contact with the master, mm -hmm. which is film, and they're like, yes, sir, I'm sorry, sir, and they feel like this bastard child to fit. Those are the games that I end up being less interested in as a yeah. gamer. The thing that was so amazing about The Last of Us was that 
the caliber of writing was so good yeah. that and the acting Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson mm-hmm. completely carried the performance of that game on a level that w- few games have ever oh, had yeah, before. Sure. I mean, it was it was real acting, real performance, and they managed to overcome the fact that the mechanics of the game, the actual game below that writing and and storytelling, was pretty generic. You know, it had some good ideas, yeah. but I mean, it was... There were moments that I remember, you know, like when you're hiding and the, 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 the clickers are always, you know, that's a, such a great concept but, but, of trying to not make noise and bypass but those what, things. But, yeah, you know, but, you, you, know, you, you also yeah. hit under a cardboard box in Metal Gear Solid yeah, exactly. 15 years ago, so it's Same like... strategy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not wildly innovative. No. With one exception, and I, I will always say The Last of Us did something that... I'd never experienced before that does make me say this is advancing the actual art of games mm-hmm. which was spoiler if you haven't played The Last of Us skip well, like 2017 I think <laughs> I know but still some people discover these things later and that's I don't true, want to true. take it away from even one person because this made such an impact on me so if they if someone's watching this has not played The Last of Us and want to play The Last of Us skip like th- 120 seconds forward um, the very end of the game yeah. when you go into the surgery room and you decide I cannot let them kill. Yeah. Well, okay, I'm, I'm I'm phrasing it wrong because as to my point, it's not you saying I want to go in and rescue Ellie. It's Joel. Yeah. That game said we don't want to make this blank avatar of a character like Mario or 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 you know uh, uh, Sonic or some other character that actually has no personality and is just your avatar and is yeah. meant for you to project yourself onto. Or yeah, Journey yeah. would be the same. Yeah, yeah. Or Skyrim or Mass Effect or something where you spend 30 hours crafting the character to be as much like you as possible exactly, yeah. and they give you a lot of you know ability to really mold that character. Mm-hmm. The Last of Us said, "No, this isn't your story. This is Joel's story and yeah. you need to know what it's like to be Joel." And when you go into that surgery room and the game stops and it almost breaks the fourth wall because you go into the room and a player like me who becomes very kind of puritan and always mm-hmm. wants to do everything all perfectly i become captain picard and says like we must stand by our principles <laughs> i go in there and i don't want to shoot those doctors i'm like surely i can just yell at them or i can shoot and they run away or whatever right. and i can rescue ellie of course i'm also an avid science fit so i said maybe she needs to die but uh, <laughs> but i go in there and i embrace the idea that okay we have to rescue ellie now and and the game stops completely in a way that is not realistic. Like, you can stand there indefinitely, and the doctors will just go, oh, 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 and quake in fear without cease, because the game is waiting for you and saying, you have to murder them. You need to know what it's like for Joel to murder not just innocent people, but people that could literally save the world right now. But you don't care. You care about this girl. She's a source of healing for you that is essential and you're willing to do a very wrong thing to claim that healing selfishly for yourself and you need to know what that's like and that to me the forced empathy of that i had never experienced in a game and it's because joel was so thoroughly conceived as a character up to that point that feeling that moment or in that moment felt like this isn't me but Joel has to do this, and right. and I need to know what that feels like, and yeah. I need to murder in cold blood, and that I'll I I have never felt that way from a game before or since, where I I really kind of became someone else for a split second. Yeah, and it was and the the, the, the ending. I mean the oh, and the, then he lies. The lump in your throat. Oh my time, god! And just and then it just cuts 
I can't wait for the sequel, oh man. I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> and Gustavo's score was like, oh, it's just so perfect. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's just true. Like this, this post-apocalyptic, like Western take on it, but it's just so sparse and just like a like a candle about it's to that little Ron Rocco. Yeah. You don't yeah. need more than that. Yeah. It's true, and I. It's funny because I'm not the biggest fan of his music. I yeah. I like yeah. the vibe of it, but I was really crushed when Memoirs of a Geisha didn't win the Oscar yeah, over yeah. Uh, Brokeback Mountain. Oh, no, for sure. No, uh, it's just, or... Yeah, but um, I mean, I admire his his. Um, he has a he has a thing that he does that only he does, yeah. and I always admire that. Like John Bryan or somebody, where you think that that person has really mastered. An approach and, a, and an aesthetic that's that's yeah. uniquely theirs. Uh, but The Last of Us, I was like, okay, this makes me a Gustavo fan. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just they found his talents and kind of molded it to. I mean, it was. Just I remember we were working on Journey, and 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 the sound designer Steve Johnson was simultaneously sound designing The Last of Us, and it was yeah. not announced. And he kept going over to Naughty Dog when we were working on Journey, and and I said, "What are you, what's going on over there?" And of course, you know, like any other composer, I start sniffing around. I'm like, "I wonder if they've hired somebody yet." And he and he he couldn't remember who it was. He goes, "They hired some Hollywood guy," and <laughs> I remember then later it, it's revealed it's Gustavo, and I left. I was like, "I don't know in what universe we call Gustavo a Hollywood guy," <laughs> um, but um, but Hollywood I guy. <laughs> yeah I respected the fact that Neil Druckmann. He really cast a composer mm -hmm. specifically for that role, and I thought he chose very well. Yeah, that's a game that I don't. People ask all the time if you could score any game that you didn't score. Yeah, what would it be? And it's always a weird question for me because I think, okay, The Last of Us is for sure one of my favorite games yeah, of all time. You don't want to. But I would, yeah, it would take away from it yeah, if exactly. I took out Gustavo's music. Or my favorite example is G Gary Scheinman's score to Bioshock. Bioshock oh, yeah. is to me another high mark of games. Yeah. But Gary's score is interwoven for that. If with that, if I scored it, I would actually be removing something integral. Yeah. So why would I want that as much as? Well, I ask that question too, uh, uh, every now and then, and it's it's more of a, I think the concept of the question is like. What kind of playground would you want to play in? Like, you know. Oh sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. Not like get that score out of here. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Of course. So to uh, to kind of wrap things up, I um, usually like to ask composers this one question, and I know James we, Lipton questions. <laughs> yes. When you meet God. At the, no. Exactly. <laughs> the <laughs> best one of those ever was Seth MacFarlane. He goes, if you could have any job other than what you're, and I said, it's going to be something with, with music. And he goes, I want to be an orchestral composer. And I was like, yes, I knew it. <laughs> I love know. that. He is the biggest film music fan. That's why I love ah, Seth MacFarlane. He, he is the he, best. Which is Joel McNeely. And, he, and uh, yeah, he's talking about Debney, uh, yeah. you know, giving Joel and Debney a full orchestra every week on Orville. And Bruce Broughton did the main yeah. titles. And 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 no mock-ups. Yeah. I mean, it's like. Just on Family Guy every week with, you know, Walter and, and Ron. It's just like. It's amazing. It's just like it is. <laughs> that that guy, the best story I heard about him was from Joel on A Million Ways to Die in the West, mm -hmm. where Joel he wanted Joel to write a proper end credit, no, no music editing, a proper end credit suite. Yeah. Just let your imagination run wild. So Joel took the themes and made a big end credit. And then later they went and watched the end credits, and it was moving too fast, the scroll. And so they said, we got to slow it down. And it added like 40 seconds or something. Uh -huh. And Joel said, we can you know, just music edit something to cover that. And Seth said, no, lengthen the piece by 40 seconds. And Seth, out of his own pocket, did another single AFM uh, three-hour session for 40 more seconds. Wow. Uh, just because he wanted the end credits to be right and done with the full... Se I'm like, I love this man. He is a force 
for good yeah. in our industry. Oh, for sure. Like, but it's not his industry, but by no. proxy, he is a f powerful force for good for no, all the rest great of us. It's when you see direct, like, creative directors and executives pushing other, you know, art form, you know, other people. Oh yeah. The scenes like that. On the, when the new Cosmos uh, with yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson aired. I remember, you know, Seth MacFarlane is responsible for that yeah, coming into being. And, exactly. and I remember seeing on his Twitter the night of the premiere, it was like 13 million people watched this. Primetime yeah. slot on Fox, right. a show, a non-narrative show about science. Yeah. And Seth MacFarlane's tweet then was, I am, like, be jealous, I'm drinking tonight with Alan Silvestri. And I was like, <laughs> God, I love him. It's so good. And he performed with John at the bowl. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. oh, that was that good. Was it, amazing. Moments like that actually make me really emotional because you know that he was such a nerd growing up. And to yeah. just imagine the idea, it's like J.J. Abrams and Giacchino yeah. taking on Star Trek and Star Wars and thinking like 30 years ago and 40 years ago, those things yeah. are what made them want to do it. And now they're they're the, the driving force of it. And I, I love seeing that manifestation of childhood passion. Yeah. And, but with Seth MacFarlane singing with John Williams at the Bull, that was special. Know, that really was. I recorded that, and I still just watch it every now and then. I'm like, this is just great. Like, yeah, <laughs> the idea of John Will, the idea of mutual admiration with John Williams, because Seth MacFarlane is an unbelievable singer. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that guy could go toe to toe with Dean Martin and or his, Frank Sinatra. And he he releases these so, uh, solo albums, and they're fantastic. He has a Christmas album, and he just added you one recently. And Joel, yeah, I think he's done four now. Yeah, his uh, his sister does it too. Like she's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love. I have no idea what you were going to ask, but I love that we <laughs> talked for five minutes about Seth MacFarlane. Yeah. <laughs> well, the question was going to be um, uh, <laughs> the actual question was going to be. I know we talked about this different projects, and every project had a different kind of genesis point and everything. But in your process, typically, where does the first note come from? Like where? Like, Hell, if I know. You don't know. Is it, is it not even explainable? Like, I mean, sometimes it's it just shows up. You just I just hear it yeah but then other times i grind for a week and yeah. and i hate everything um one of my most uh one of the remember the fred carlin goldsmith documentary that came out in like 1993 or mm -hmm. so um there's a interview with him where he's talking about his score to medicine man and he said he wrote theme after theme after theme after theme after theme after theme and nothing was right and then he went back and just kind of went playing through all those themes at one point and he played back the very first one again and he realized that was it yeah. But he couldn't see it until he'd gone through all these rejects first. Right. I remember I heard that story when I was like 13 years old. That was really empowering to me because I thought the process is actually what matters. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the process is lightning in a bottle. Sure. But sometimes the process is going in a giant circle. Sometimes it's getting lost in the woods and then finding something deep down in the woods or down the rabbit hole kind of thing. And... The other thing for me is I try to make the process itself something that changes every time so that I don't right. have the same starting position. Yeah. You know, like I don't like, for example, to use improvisation as a generator of material because you, you end up developing muscle memory in your fingers and it's going to all be the same at some point. So, so you don't just tinker at the piano try to find something. No, I try to be more conscientious if I can. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I also, Chris Young uh, had really great advice uh, when I was a student that he we basically said, Get, a, get away from your instruments because mm. at least we're talking about thematic, melodic material. Yeah, yeah. He said, be able to sing it because we are fundamentally human beings are melodic instruments. We are monophonic creator, creators of sound unless you're a Mongolian throat singer. <laughs> and so the ability to sing through a melody 
and then remember it mm-hmm. is a really powerful way to know you're on to something potentially. And I never, I never had that as my process before. And so often I will just think and go take a walk. There must all the people who live in the houses behind my studio must think I'm a homeless guy that lives <laughs> near here because I walk in front of their house every day, sometimes several times a day, where I'll come up with an idea and then I'll think, I don't know if that's it. So yeah. I'll just go and walk and I'll get back and before I open my thing, I'll think, I'll, before I open my sequence again, I'll say, can I, can I sing this back? Yeah. And if I can't, then I know automatically I need to come up with a new one. Hmm. And et cetera, et cetera. And I write things by hand. You know, I've got yeah, my little yeah. sketch pads everywhere. And uh, sometimes I go driving and just, you know, turn on my cell phone and just I'll sing continuously for 15 minutes. Like, okay, start, you know, ba, 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 ba. No, 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 no. I, it, it, it shouldn't descend. It should. And I'll just talk to myself and leave these messages that, yeah. that, okay, that, I, cool. that I need to have. You know, like people think that you should have software that automatically deletes your browser history when right. you die. Uh, <laughs> my folder that has all these horrible voicemail memos for sure should be deleted if I ever die because <laughs> no force on earth would ever compel me to make any of that public because it's the most raw guts of my creative process that c- yeah. there could be. And But it is a way to get there. So, so the answer is I have no idea. It, I, I, I can't explain. It's it's actually gotten me interested in things like determinism and neuroscience because mm-hmm. I can't actually, I never feel like I can attribute to myself the music. It's like once there's an idea, it think, it just suddenly seems like there it is. Yeah. And it you think, I don't know where, it's just suddenly there. It's suddenly there. I, there's not this overly tactile internal experience of like plucking, okay, A and then D, right. E flat, it yeah. just, it just is either there or it's not. Right. And sometimes it shows up gradually, and sometimes it shows up very angstly, very yeah. full in a very anguish-ridden or anguish-filled uh, f- kind of way. And then other times, you have it and lose it and gain it again, and and whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It never feels at least to me like I'm completely authoring the idea it just I either can identify it amongst the stream of things in my head and pluck it out of that or I can't so in hindsight as a result when I finish a project usually even the moment it's done I listen back and I say not only do I have no clue how I wrote this but I couldn't do it again if I had to if I sat down to write this exact score with all the same goals and all the same references and all the same everything, I would write probably a really different score hmm. today. Yeah. It's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you, by studying something, you actually change it. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, trying to, you can't, like, the study of electrons is obviously probabilistic. You right. can't pinpoint where they are. You can only pinpoint where they likely are. But in theory, you know, the, the atoms that form this uh, coffee mug, the electrons could theoretically be on the other side of the universe. It's just a very low probability, but yeah. that is possible. Yeah. And similarly to me with, with music, I, I can't, I can't pin it down so, so concretely. And by virtue of composing, I change as a composer. Yeah. So when sure. I finish a score, 
if I reflect on could I write this again today, that is a completely hypothetical concept because I will never be the same composer now that I've written that score. Right, yeah. So the me that's starting over from scratch afterward is not the same guy that <laughs> two months or ten months or two years or whatever earlier was starting it. The other thing, of course, is that time lapse, like on Journey, three years, I was 24 and I finished it at 27. That was well over 10% of my whole life. Yeah. I was a totally different person by the end of Journey. Yeah. And by total luck, we did the game kind of chronologically and it follows through the, the, the life. And so, yeah. so the early cues were like immature yeah. and I was a much more mature, I hope, <laughs> person by the end of that three years. And I ended up not really changing the first ones because the immaturity of them in this almost like method composing sort of way mm. felt right. And then the score becomes a little bit more sophisticated as it goes yeah. by virtue of the fact that I lived 10 per, more like 12 or whatever it was percent of my life during the course of that production. Yeah. Because it did really those final cues of the score were written like weeks before the very end. I mean, it it wasn't like three years, but the last six months was just spent recording and what. I mean, it, it came flying in under the door like Indy pulling his hat. I mean, it, yeah. it it was amazingly tight even despite having three years, and you you change. Yeah. You're not the same guy. I mean, I lost loved ones, and I I I you know learned an enormous about about myself and what mattered to me as a composer and in, sure. in my friendships and and you know fundamentally a different human being by the time reached the end wow well, whatever the process is it's fantastic because your music is always just, it's just a really powerful part of my life just listening as a listener so well you're, you're too kind it <laughs> means a lot uh, you know my my goal is usually just to not be the glaringly terrible contribution like if the if the animation's good, the art is good, the acting is good. I don't want there to be this one thing that everyone goes, yeah, but the score. Um, and so my goal is like if I can just rise to the level of not yeah. being awful. Well, if I can rise, if I'm working with someone like that game company, rising to their level is the dream because they're yeah. geniuses. Yeah. The goal is to just not be glaringly far off, <laughs> so behind them, uh, because it's you know it's it's you're your own worst. Critic, you, you look oh, back sure. and you think, sure. you think, you know, God, they made such a beautiful game and all these cues. I wish I could change them. And there's this and that and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and like Captain Abu Rad is one of the most special films I ever scored. And there's one cue that I was working really fast. You know, three weeks to do that whole score. Wow. And um, uh, ish. And um, there's one cue that that when I listen back to it, I'm like. I don't know if I knew this at the time, but that veers awfully close to Castaway. <laughs> and that kills me now because I'm like, there's no reason for that. There's no right. reason to, if there's a billion ways to score any scene. Yeah. There's no reason why it has to sound like the temp. I mean, of course there's sometimes situations yeah. where, and I don't even think it was the temp. I just, I love that to me, Castaway is one of the greatest films and scores oh, of all time. Yeah. And, uh, and I and I look back and I'm, I was like 21 or 22 when I wrote that score and I can kind of forgive myself on account of stupid youth. But even then I'm like, that's not an excuse. It's not that that cue. There's one cue that I absolutely if if I could strip it out of the film and recompose it today, even if I kept the parameters the same of like the exposed oboe solo, it's not difficult to be its own thing. Yeah. I don't struggle with that uh, uh, these days because. 
I don't know. I just I think I'm more mature, I guess, yeah, as a composer. Sure, yeah. But when I was early 20s, apparently that was the thing because I go back and I'm like, oh, I hate that cue so much. <laughs> and so it's even though people would say they're so moved by it, I'm I'm like, but don't you see how shitty that cue is? <laughs> and even Journey has a lot of those. Not necessarily for temp. There was no temp in Journey, but it was. There's moments where I just think I'm a better writer than that. It kills me. Oh man, uh, Journey is, is is a masterpiece. So. Well, I don't, I can't, I can't in good conscience agree with that, but you're kind to say it. I still, I, I love listening to it when I drive in the mountains. I love listening to it when I drive, you know, this kind of big landscape areas where it just like, just, you made me cry multiple times. So. <laughs> I guess, uh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Austin, I want to thank you so much for yeah, your time. It was such a great to, to talk and. That was, was really fun. Thanks. Well, my pleasure. If there's a single human being that's still watching <laughs> by this point, then thanks to them. <laughs> and thank you. Thanks.